Welcome to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay, fitting it all together to make teaching and learning in the junior grades more accessible, practical, and fun for both teachers and their students. Here's your host, teacher by day, mom of three, and curriculum creator of all the things from madlylearning.com, Patty Firth. Hey, so maybe you want to do guided reading, but the biggest thing that is preventing you from successfully doing guided reading in your class is what to do with the other students. So in today's episode, we are going to dig into exactly different types of activities that you can use in your classroom to allow you to use guided instruction and work with small groups while keeping the rest of your students engaged in what it is they're working on. Thank you for joining me. My name is Patty, and I am a junior teacher here in Ontario, Canada. And every single week, we have a new episode of Teaching with Madly Learning, where we talk all things teaching and learning in the junior grades. And it is our hope that through all of these episodes, we help to demystify some of the complexities of teaching to make your experience in your classroom more engaging and fun for both you and your students. So let's dig in. Let's talk exactly about what you can be doing with your rest of your class so that you can be engaged in guided instruction. Number one, should we even be doing guided instruction in our junior classrooms or is that really a primary type of activity? Short answer, absolutely yes. We need to be looking at using guided instruction in our classroom because it is one thing that allows us to move the needle. We are there to help our students succeed and sometimes guided instruction is what you can do the most bang for your buck. It also is gonna cut down on your assessment because one of the biggest benefits of guided reading is the fact that you can count what students are doing in front of you for observational and conversational assessment data. The more information you can get in the moment through a guided instruction lesson means there is less paper and pencil activities you need to necessarily mark at home because you're doing it in person right in front of you. You can track what students are doing. You can track the conversations. You can record your observational notes. You can have conversations with students. And you have a much better understanding of exactly where your students are when you're able to observe them doing their learning in front of you. Now, when can we use guided instruction? Traditionally, we're using guided instruction for guided reading. We can also do it for guided writing and for other subject areas. But I also think it's really important to be able to use guided instruction in your math classroom as well. While we can all agree that guided instruction is important in our classroom and it helps us as teachers and it helps our students, the biggest factor that contributes to our success at being able to successfully run guided instruction in our classroom is what are the other kids doing that are not sitting in front of us? That's often the challenge. So there's two things that we have to look at. Number one, how do we get them to a point where they can work independently on any task we give them? And number two, what exactly should the tasks look like that they are engaged in while we are working with a small group? And there's also that piece, the accountability piece, making sure that students are accountable for the work that we assign them during guided instruction. So let's touch on independent learning. Independent learning is something that students are taught. It is not something that students generally intrinsically have. Most students, when given the choice, will just do what they want to do. But We need to teach them what independent work looks like in our classroom. 
we need to be really explicit with students as to what independent work looks like, what they should be doing. We need to teach them how to be accountable to themselves. We need to teach them about themselves as learners and decide what works for them, what doesn't. Does listening to music make them more effective or less effective? Does working in flexible seating make them more effective as a worker or less effective as a worker? There's a lot of exploring, discovering, and some failure in the idea that we need to teach students to design the conditions around them that are going to make them most successful. And some of this is trial and error in having students learn and try different modalities of learning and working independently and figuring out what's going to work best for them. And those conversations that you're having are also a great way to assess a student's metacognitive learning because they're able to think about the conditions that are going to make them the most successful. Do I need to listen to music? Does listening to music actually help me or does listening to music actually prevent me from learning and working effectively? These are all really important questions that a junior student can begin to figure out whether they're in grade four, grade five, or grade six. These are questions that are really important for them to learn about themselves as a learner. It's much easier to learn them now in these grades than it would be once they get to grade seven, grade eight, and high school, where they're just expected to be able to work independently and they need to be able to know what's going to work for them right away because the workload is coming at them a lot faster than perhaps what it is in grade four and grade five and even grade six. So we need to have those conversations. We also need to look at independent work activity as something they have to build the stamina to achieve. This may mean that building a student's stamina goes from two minutes. We start at two minute success rate. Then we go to three minutes and then four minutes. Maybe we go back to two minutes. It means us as teachers, we need to be patient with them building that independent work skills. And we also have to be really conscious of not accidentally reinforcing the skills that are going to prevent them from being successful. We need to look at what conditions we need to put in place, what our expectations are. We need to communicate those expectations of what independent work is going to look like very clearly. And then we need to be patient as we strategically build those independent work skills. Yes, I would say about 95% of your students have the capacity to learn how to work independently and sustain independent learning for 15 to 20 minutes with the appropriate training expectations and activities. In my experience over the last 15 years, there is very few students that cannot maintain some level of independent work. In fact, most of the students that struggle the most with independent work If you look at what they're able to do and look at this as an asset model instead of a deficit model and look at what they can do and what conditions allow them to be independent, that's going to help those students. Do they need to be sitting at a desk? Do some students work better standing? Sitting under a table, under a floor, does that help them? Setting a timer and giving them a time limit, does that help that particular student become more effective and conscious of the time that it takes and how much time they're wasting? Do they need frequent breaks where they need to be able to get up and do a lap around the classroom? Do they need to be able to move frequently during that independent time? Independent work does not necessarily mean that we are expecting students to sit in one spot working perfectly silently the entire 20 minutes. Independent means the student is being productive 
and able to complete the assigned tasks efficiently. But that's going to look different for different students. So figuring out what works for that particular student while also being somewhat flexible for ourselves as teachers and realizing that just because we want independent work to look like perfectly silent students sitting at their desks, not making a peep focus the whole time and without movement, that may not be realistic. So if we readjust our expectations of what independent work looks like, and then we tailor the expectations for each individual student based on the what makes them the most effective and get them talking about what strategies they can put in place that allow them to be most effective during independent work, we can then build that stamina and have more success with the most number of students. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have the 5 to 6% of your class that may really struggle and may need additional support and maybe has different expectations on what success looks like for them for independent work. You may not have every student, but if you can get about 95% of your students working independently, sometimes the group contagion and the group effect is enough to at least minimize some of the disruptive behaviors from other students that may not be able to realistically sustain independent work for that 15 to 20 minutes. So once you've set the conditions for independent work, then it's time to look at what exactly your students can be doing while you are working with a guided group. Some of my favorite activities are to look at finding activities that are fun, engaging, and student-driven. Those are really my criteria when I am planning out guided lessons for whether it's reading, writing, or math, is we're looking for engaging activities that are somewhat fun and they are higher level, yet they're still working at a student's independent level. We want to make sure that what they can do with my support, that the work is easier than that. So whatever I'm teaching them, whatever I would do with them and walk them through that, what I'm assigning to them when they're working independently is going to be easier than what they would have to do with me in support. So if I think about I'm modeling I'm sharing the things I'm doing in guided, then I make it a bit easier for independent work. Stuff that they can practice, but also be engaged in. Games, hands-on learning for math, different puzzles that they can solve, math puzzles, different equations. What I don't necessarily want to do is always have, say, rote textbook work. There is some value in that, if you have some math practice or you just want them to practice a basic skill, there is some value occasionally to throw in just here's your questions, practice them. But we also can try to up-level that and make it a game or a puzzle or filling things in or solving problems through the use of those equations. So we want to try to up-level those, but in a way that's still accessible to most students in our room. I also think that including voice and choice in our activities while students are working independently is of paramount importance. When students are engaged in what they're doing, when they enjoy it, when they were driven by their own choices, when they had some buy-in and say into what they were doing, it is much, much, much easier to manage because they are invested in what they're doing the biggest success that I have that allows me to use guided reading in my classroom without fail where students have sustained their independent work stamina 
20 to 30 minutes sometimes even, is student choice writing. Now, this is a key feature in our Ignited Literacy program because this is what is going to keep students engaged, primarily because we want them to always be writing. We want them to always be experimenting and pushing themselves and trying new things. But there's also the benefit of when students are engaged in self-selected writing tasks where they are writing something that is personally selected by them, it means they're invested in what they're writing. And when a student is at their desk or at their workspace invested in what they are doing, they often are, they zone out and they zone into what it is they're working on because it's their idea. It's their ownership. They made the choice. It is not something they're simply doing to please someone else. It's something they are doing because it's their voice, their ideas in their writing. Because I allow students self-selected writing during one of my center's activities, that activity in and of itself is what allows me to do guided reading each week. Because I can do guided reading because I very rarely have to use any management strategies in my classroom when they're in their writing. Now, we've built up to this. This is not something that we started in September. This is not something we even had in place in October. It wasn't until mid-November that we started doing guided reading. We've taken a pause due to COVID restrictions. We're going to be back at it again. But without fail, I can assign my students an independent task. They all start writing, and I have a good solid 20 minutes where they're maintaining their stamina, and I'm able to engage in guided reading. Now, I will be completely honest and transparent here. Does that mean that every student in my class is 100% engaged 100% of the time and is never drifting off and never scrolling YouTube and is never distracted? No. I know when there are students that are just doing nothing during that independent work period. However, I'm also a firm believer in natural consequences, and those students still have deadlines and due dates, and they still have to be accountable for the work that has been assigned to them. And they are required to make up time that they have wasted, or if they don't meet deadlines, they need to be able to show me why that is. There is accountability on the back end. So if a student feels as though they're going to waste a tremendous amount of time, that student will have natural consequences of needing to use their own personal time or not being able to engage in other activities in order to be able to make up that work and make up that time. And this is an ongoing conversation with those students because this is actually a really valuable learning opportunity for those students about learning how to effectively use their time. And then it's not a whole class thing. Those students are generally working quietly when they're disengaged because they're trying to hide that they're not actually engaged. But as time goes on, those students become more and more productive because they learn that it's just easier to be productive when it's independent work time than it is to continually waste time and have nothing to show for it. Uncomfortable conversations at home, missed out times with peers, missed opportunities to engage in extracurriculars because they are not using their class time appropriately. And all through that, of course, timelines and focus is all differentiated. It's responsive to student need and ability. So different students have different expectations. So those that are struggling with language or writing are obviously going to have different expectations on output or what it is that they're expected to do because that's all student-centered and student-driven as to what it is they're required to do and what their expectations are as they're focused on their individual goals for writing. 
Now for math, I think math is another one where I really love centers. Our Ignited Math program will also have centers. It will have guided math instruction, but it's also going to have a key component of math centers. I love using math centers. I think it is such a fun way to practice math skills that is not everyone doing the same thing at the same time. But there is a point in your math center where you want to have a really nice balance between practice and inquiry. And we want to have students discovering some things, learning concepts. We want them to practice, but we also want them to have opportunities for hands-on learning and practicing problem solving and all of those key pieces so that we can integrate the social emotional learning concepts in there and have them learning how to collaborate, make tools or use tools. And we want them to be able to practice their math, but also be able to problem solve and think deeper about their math concepts and have activities that are low floor, high ceiling tasks that Joe Bowler likes to call them in her mathematical mindset book. So in your guided math activities, what are your students doing at math centers so that you can do guided math? Well, I really like there to be a hands-on learning activity. I want students to be able to touch and feel and manipulate math, play a game, solve a puzzle, figure things out, look at how concepts interrelate with one another, think a little bit deeper, solve problems, and also have lots of student choice. One of the activities in our guided math is making homes for pets. So this is featured in our second unit, unit B, and students are making homes for pets and they're looking at having a pet, what the pet's house would cost, what different accessories you could add to this home for your pet. And they make a variety of different homes for pets. They pick the pet and then they pick a few accessories and they pick another pet, pick the few accessories. They're learning financial literacy. They're also having lots of choice there because there's many options for accessories for each pet that they could choose. They're deciding what's going to happen. Grade five students are learning to calculate tax and unit rates and grade fours are just learning money amounts and grade threes are learning to add money amounts to, and rounding. All of those features are in there. Making homes for pets is a great opportunity for students to work. They're cutting out cards, they're manipulating, they're talking, they're communicating about their thinking. They get to have a little bit of fun with these cute pets and decide what it is they want to put together. But they're also looking at how all of those things fit and doing math as well. They're learning addition and subtraction. They're learning about money, but they're also learning about financial literacy. All woven into this fun little centers activity and game. Playing bingo with their friends, learning how to solve puzzles of which question goes with what answer. So here's your answers. Here's your questions. Which one goes together? What order? Kind of solving mystery clues are all features of different activities that students can do. It gets them really talking and thinking and applying what it is that's being taught in your lessons and applying those each and every week and having them have a little bit of fun and being engaged. The expectation for math centers might be a little bit different from writing where the volume in your class may not be silent. You want them to work on what that volume looks like. I don't want my math centers to be a silent experience. I want my math centers to be hands-on, communicating, accountable talk, like all of those things should be happening in my math centers while I'm working with a small group. 
So there's lots of things that you can do, choice boards, student engagement, making things fun, and making sure that the activity is at your students' independent work level so they can successfully do it without you are some of the great ideas that you can include in your guided instruction. For more information on learning about the Madly Learning programs of Ignited Math and Ignited Literacy, please go to www.madlylearning.com. Thank you for listening to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay. Join me on www.madlylearning.com for more information on all things teaching in the junior grades. Don't forget, you can always catch this show on the Madly Learning YouTube channel. See you next week for another replay episode of Teaching with Madly Learning.